Today's conversation is brought to you by He Gets Us. How did the world's greatest love story become known as a hate group? That's the question behind He Gets Us, the largest national multimedia campaign to change hearts and minds about Jesus. Reaching over 1 million people daily, He Gets Us now helps connect local churches to the conversation. From discussion guides, Bible reading plans, and even a sermon series, you can now bring He Gets Us and the nationwide conversation to your church. Visit hegetsuspartners.com forward slash NAE to get these free resources. One of my major concerns about this deconstruction process and that I see in culture is people want to deconstruct without doing the work of reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And they want to say things, but it takes work to reconstruct, to see what you actually believe, to investigate both sides. So when I was hearing about Bart Ehrman, then I had to read Dan Wallace because they're on both sides of the argument, right? And then listen to their debate to see where I fell on that issue. That's a part of the reconstruction journey. And so it requires rigor to reconstruct um, and it requires discipline. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. We're joined by Lisa Fields, founder of the Jude 3 Project, an organization dedicated to helping Black Christian communities know what they believe and why. She offers an inspiring perspective on rooted faith diversity, and how to have difficult conversations that would apply to us all. I was deeply encouraged by this conversation, and I know you will be too. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us today and for this unique and important ministry that you do. Thank you for having me, Walter. Um, so, Lisa, uh, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about your background? What compelled you to start Jude 3 Project? Yeah, that's a great question. So I had no ministry aspirations at all. Uh, I'm a pastor's kid uh, and uh, maybe some pastor's kids are listening. You know that when you're a pastor's kid, church is all consuming. And so when I, I, my thought was, I'm going to grow up. We played the stock market game in fifth grade. I was in the magnet program and I loved the, I fell in love with the idea of being a stockbroker. And so my whole goal when I started undergrad was to become a stockbroker and go to a mega church and sit in the back. I didn't want to be in ministry, not because my parents weren't great parents and examples, but just it, I was just like, I don't want to do what it requires. Um, and so but that changed um, in college when I took a New Testament class as an elective, thinking it would be like Sunday school, first day of class. My professor said, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. I didn't know New Testament at a, uh, a university was different than Sunday school. Uh, so our textbook was Bart Ehrman. Uh, Walter, I know, I'm sure you know that means that this is nothing remotely like Sunday school. Yeah. And so I was really struggling with my faith. Thankfully, my dad is a pastor. He introduced me to apologetics and I, I fell in love with apologetics. However, it, while it helped me in class, I noticed there weren't apologists that looked like me leading in the space. And so that eventually led me to switch my major from investment finance to communication and religious studies. Mm. Um, I would subsequently go into banking after I graduated from UNF just because you need a job when you have student loans. (laughs) 
And so uh worked for Bank of America and then Merrill Lynch for a bit. And then I felt the leading of the Lord to quit my job and go to seminary. And so on a whim, I quit my job uh, and went to Lynchburg, Virginia to start a seminary, um, which didn't seem like a smart decision on the onset. <laughs> but looking back, I felt like God was ordering my steps. And the last year of seminary started the Jude 3 project. Wow. Okay. Jude 3. Such an interesting name. Why Jude 3? So it was out of Jude uh, 3, the verse 3, earnestly contend for the faith, or 1 Peter 3.15, uh, be able to give a defense for the hope that you have. And so it really was, it, people ask me that all the time, it was not a spiritual decision. It was like, I had this idea graphic-wise of a, a ring, a boxing ring, that I was going to put make our website background. Mm-hmm. And so that was the... It was the aesthetics. But then as I thought about it, I was like, a boxing ring doesn't seem like the most mm. uh <laughs> the most uh the most helpful example of what we're trying to communicate as a So I ended up ditching that idea, but I kept the name. So G3 project. <laughs> That's great. That's <laughs> funny how ideas follow up on each other and they take their own unique twists and turns. Um, but that that's that's so interesting. You know, um, all right, well, let's kind of jump into this that you alluded to that I want to make explicit. You had mentioned that there are not a lot of um, apologists that look like you. Mm-hmm. Um, draw that out. What does that mean? Yeah, so there were, at the time when I was introduced to apologetics, the only person of color was Ravi Zacharias and everybody else was old, older white men. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, while they're what they're saying is helpful, it needs to be contextualized. And so because apologetics, I didn't feel like was was something that was mainstream in the black in black churches. I was like, how do I get this to serve the people that I care about that I worship with? And so that that's kind of the thought behind that. Hmm. All right. This this is um, such an interesting endeavor from a missional point of view, whether it's Acts chapter 17 and uh, the ways that Paul adjusted and contextualized his message when he was talking to the Athenians and it sounded much different than the kind of preaching he would do in a synagogue to a Jewish audience. So clearly this notion of contextualizing culturally was right from the get-go and contextualizing culturally, but also with respect to this idea of contending for the faith. Yes. So. What are the particular topics within the Black community more broadly that you are seeking to contextualize? So I think, you know, this idea is Christianity for everyone. So uh, specifically, is Christianity a white man's religion? And so that's one of the primary questions we're wrestling with. Um, Does God care about um, Black people? what is the problem of evil, but it obviously takes different uh, shapings in our in our context, in the Black context. But I think that primary one that we constantly grapple with when we go to historically Black colleges and universities, when we talk to um, older and younger people is, is Christianity for everyone. It is, is it a, just a white Eurocentric religion? Hmm. How does that show up? Give, give us a little bit more detail on why that argument? I mean, in one way, it seems obvious, um, but I want to explore that a little bit more. What what does that mean? Yeah, one of the major 
challenges is the history of of this country and slavery and how slaves slave owners used to use scripture particularly paul's words and peter's words slaves submit to your master to oppress people um i think this no other thought comes to mind uh no other kind of narrative comes to mind that better articulates this than when you read howard thurman's jesus and the disinherited and he tells the story of his grandmother who he would visit in Daytona Beach of Florida every summer. And she would have him read scripture to her. And he noticed that she would have him read the gospel Psalm. And he wanted to read Paul's letters. And she said, he said, grandma, why won't you let me read Paul's letters? And she said, my slave master used Paul's words against me. And I vowed to never read him again. And so I think that really shapes the way black people particularly view scripture in light of the reality that white slave owners use texts like that to oppress. Mm. So what do you do in response to that? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that I like to tell our students when we're at HBCU campus, I point to the, uh, the reality of the slave Bible. And so the slave Bible was created um, as a means of control. But if you notice the slave Bible, a lot of verses and chapters were taken out. Mm -hmm. All the verses on liberation um, were taken out. The Exodus account was taken out. Uh, Different parts of scripture were taken out. And so if that's the case, then slave owners didn't want slaves to read the entire Bible from cover to cover because they knew that the whole narrative is liberative, Mm -hmm. not oppressive. And so one way to protest white supremacy is not to throw away the Bible because that is basically feeding into um, what they wanted you to do to begin with. Mm. So I encourage students to read the Bible from cover to cover as a means of protest Mm. and kind of reframing it for them. Also, we point back to early African Christianity to show that Christianity existed really heavily in Africa uh, and the in Early church fathers like Tertullian and Athanasius, Augustine shaped uh, Christian doctrine. And so they were African. And so they were not white Europeans. And so that really helps, I think, reshape the narrative for many people. Well, that that's so, um, on the one hand, really disturbing to hear about the slave Bible, the kind of the editing out of certain passages that would be redemptive, liberative, as you've described it. Um, but it's also really compelling to hear about um, the African origins of our early church doctrine and yeah. many of the people that we might have seen in paintings or in other contexts um, and just naturally assume are, you know, kind of uh, European Renaissance figures. I mean, they really were African figures. That's that's extraordinary to think about. Yeah. Um, and what are people's responses? Would you like does this get traction when you and in what ways and why does it get traction? Yeah, it's gotten a lot of traction. We've seen the traction through our documentary Unspoken that really tells this story quite well. And we get traction from young people to old people who say they were really on the cusp or about to throw away their faith. And this really helped restore and renew their faith. And one particular, I remember when we did our first HBCU tour stop at Bethune, Cookman in Daytona, speaking of Howard Thurman in Daytona, a student said, I finally see myself in my faith. Hmm. And that was a testimony that I will never forget, because I think when you see people that look like you 
leading in this way is the faith becomes your own. It's no longer a white man's religion. It's a religion, in fact, for everyone. Hmm. Um, you mentioned the documentary Unspoken. Describe that a little bit more. Yeah, we uh, we we were hearing students get leaving the faith because they would watch documentaries or these YouTube videos or Facebook videos or look at memes that that depicted Christianity as a white man's religion. So we felt like we wanted to curate um, a resource in the media in which they were consuming to refute the claims. And so the documentary was birthed where we tell the story of Christianity and the African heritage. So we start from the black presence in the Bible. We moved to early African Christianity all the way to the 1600s in Africa, and then work our way through uh, Christianity and slavery and that kind of mixed bag of history Mm. all the way up to present day. Mm. And so we really kind of try to show how Christianity has looked for Black people through the ages. Mm. So you say mixed bag in in describing this documentary. Um, We've touched upon some of the really difficult um heretical and 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 tragic readings um but when you say mixed bag there must have been some stream of christianity even in america that really did hold out uh hope and liberation what what did that look like yeah i think about slaves who had read the bible and really critiqued their slave masters for their misinterpretation and so that when they were able to read, they were able to say, hey, what you're giving us is not correct to scripture. And I think black slaves who read scripture and understood the gospel were able to critique the misuse of scripture and really keep the Christian message alive um, for for African people. Hmm. Um, the notion of depiction of Christianity in these racialized terms, um, you know, that is part of the larger conversation and you've described ways in which people need to be reached by this reframing, but are there some more specific particular issues for um, black Gen Z millennial Christians that they're wrestling with that um, we also need to uh, taken consideration because there might be some similarities with other cultures. There might be some differences and we, we have opportunities uh, p- to be learning from one another. Uh, and I think we're all asking the question of how does the good news of Jesus Christ make sense for um, all the generations? Yeah. And I, I think one of the major ones that I think reaches across the, the gamut of all people is this need for peace. When you look at the mental health crisis that's affecting all generations, I think the peace aspect is really big. When I see young people dabbling into crystals, new age spirituality, what they're really looking for is a quest for peace. Mm. They're like, what can I latch on to if I have to do sage or if I have to do meditation? What is going to bring some peace to my soul? And I think we've really tried to see what is the question underneath the question? You know, obviously, students, when you're dealing with someone who are, 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 is doing alternative spiritual practices, you're like, what are you doing? That Jesus is the way. But then you don't realize what is the question? What is the heart underneath that? Why are they doing that? Is it because they're looking for peace? And I've discovered, especially with African-American students that are using sage and crystals and doing these new age spiritual practices, they're looking for peace underneath that because they come from so much 
trauma and things of that nature that they're like anything that'll work for me to help me get to some state of peace is what I'm going to gravitate to. And so I think ministering to that part, minister, trying to say, okay, I I don't want to talk about whether crystals are right or wrong right now. Let's put that aside. Let's talk about who can really give you the peace you're searching for. And that's been a real strategy that I've been trying to to use with reaching Gen Z, especially when they're dabbling with other other practices. Hmm. The notion of mental health you've you've touched on and clearly the the challenges that we've experienced during the years of the pandemic and uh, all the social upheaval. I mean, there there is a real lack of peace. Um, how do you frame the piece as more than simply Jesus is here to make you feel better about yourself? Um, what are the kind of communal aspects of it or what are the demands of discipleship and how does that play into it? Yeah. So I think it's a reframing. It's funny you asked that question because I just finished my chapter on peace for my book. Uh, so I have a lot to say about it. Um, but I think we we view peace in this one dimensional way when the Bible, I feel like, gives a three dimensional view of peace. Peace with God, peace with others and peace within. And they're all interwoven. So peace with God is the work that Jesus did for us. So it's accepting his work. But if peace with God takes work, then peace with people also takes work. And so it is the work of forgiveness and reconciliation in relationship over time. And then those two peace, I think, play into the inner peace. And I think that people want the inner peace without having the other two. Hmm. They don't want to prioritize the peace of God, peace with God. And they don't necessarily want to do the work of peace with people. Hmm. And so they want to get to the the the, the third uh, part in the, I guess, this trinity of peace, mm. uh, for lack of a better, without doing the work of doing those difficult, having those difficult, hard conversations, forgiving and reconciling. And I think God has rigged our life for that work um, because he's rigged our life for community. Mm. And so um, that's kind of how I'm thinking about peace and want people to think about it, because I think we could get some feelings of peace by doing sage and crystals, but you'll never have the lasting peace that that scripture promises without the other two aspects of it. Mm. I love that that kind of trinity of peace, the triumphant of peace, because it reframes it from just this kind of personal psychological liberation to the kind of broad communal um, freedom that you're experiencing, reconciliation with one another and with God ultimately. Um, and that's it seems to be um the heart, this kind of work that you do in conferences like the courageous conversations. You're you're trying to do in a community setting, tackling some of the most contentious issues that mm-hmm. break people apart, but doing it in a way that can bring people together mm-hmm. uh and point to God. And I mean, this is it's it's really magnificent. I've always been fascinated by what you do at uh, at the, these Jew three courageous conversations. Um, so describe, uh, some of the topics, um, some of the ethos for the courageous conversation conferences that you hold. Yeah. So courageous conversations, we tackle all the easy topics like sexuality, exclusivity, (laughs) (laughs) justice, uh, is Jesus the only way those that this year we're doing from deconstruction to reconstruction. So really focusing on, uh, 
can I, uh, how to heal from church hurt, uh, different things of that nature, the more practical things that I think people are wrestling with underneath the hood when they're talking about deconstruction. And so, uh, we really frame it by bringing two, I mean, four pastors, scholars, and thought leaders from opposite sides of the spectrum, Mm. um, from courageous, I mean, uh, from conservative backgrounds and from more progressive backgrounds. So when I say that, I'm talking about somebody that went to Southern Seminary and somebody that went to Yale Divinity Mm. are going to have very different formations as far as how they think theologically. What does it mean for them to sit at the table together? And we'll sit on the in the uh, the chairs and look at each other and have a conversation about the subject um, I, with a moderator. Um, and the moderator's job is really not to heavily moderate it, but kind of move the conversation along. But what we want to do is really highlight first the diversity of thought within the Black church, because sometimes when we think about churches, uh, we... Uh, especially as it relates to like black churches, white churches, we, we assume a monolith. We, mm. we try to paint with brushes and there's just, that's not the truth. That's not the case. And so we want to highlight the diversity of thought, but also demonstrate to people how to have these conversations in real time. And I think a lot of what, what happens and what we learn is caught, not taught. Mm. And so we want to not just tell you how to do it, but we want to show you how to do it. And that's what Courageous is about because, you know, people are sitting at the dinner table with uh, at Thanksgiving with, with family members that think differently. And if we don't give them a model, they can't coexist with their own family and friends because we haven't taught them how to engage. We just gave them kind of a debate model. And, you know, in a debate model, you look at the audience, you got a podium and you make your argument and the other person responds. But that's not real life. We want to demonstrate what it looks like in real time, real life to have these conversations and still have to coexist with the people you have the conversations with and not demonize them, but try to understand their perspective. Okay. So give us the ingredients to this recipe for having a (laughs) courageous conversation that will end well, right? Not not end with throwing turkey drumsticks at each other and the stuffing and and so forth, uh, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner. So yeah, what are the ingredients in your experience that really can make a a conversation like that fruitful? Yeah. I I think first bathe it in prayer. That's Mm -hmm. that's a lot of prayer that goes uh, before these, these conferences to (laughs) for God to, Mm -hmm. for the spirit to hold it together. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think starting off with common ground, one of the things we do before Courageous starts, we have a dinner with the speakers the night before and just hang out, get to know each other. Um, I think where we're not talking about, obviously, where they disagree, but just kind of to build camaraderie uh, mm-hmm. with the speakers uh, because we don't want them to just engage on stage. We want them to build relationships. And so it's really important for relationship building not to just have the conversation where you disagree, but have conversations around what you do agree on. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think starting with where there's agreement to kind of build rapport and relationship and then dive into the conversation. But one of the things I think when you're having these difficult conversations is best to have them in person, because one of the reasons we frame the chairs the way we frame them where they're sitting at each other, it's hard to dehumanize them when you're looking at a human. Mm. When I see you, <laughs> I take a different tone, even if I vehemently disagree with you. Mm. I just, I cannot just, it's hard for the average person. Some can do it, but most people can't just demonize somebody they're looking at. 
Um, And so that's why, you know, people can do it on on Twitter, but they don't necessarily have that same posture when they see the person in, in person. And so I think some of those practices, prayer, looking at the person, starting with um spaces of commonality, I think really help keep the conversation civil. Hmm. When you're trying to move from deconstruction to reconstruction, um, what what is the reconstruction part? I'm very interested in that, not because you know, there aren't things to critique. I mean, we've had plenty of critiques. Mm-hmm. I think what we're groping for right now is, is there something behind, behind, beyond just the deconstructing of things, uh, the destroying of things to the reconstructing of things? Um, what are you trying to reconstruct here? Yeah, that's a great question. We just uh, just filmed our first mini doc where I told the story. I actually went back to UNF and filmed in the classroom to tell my story from deconstruction to reconstruction. So it's very uh, funny that you asked that question. But I think when we think about deconstruction, one of the things I try to tell students is if think about it like a construction site or is uh, or, or just if you go to a city and you destroy everything in the city, um, <laughs> then you're living in chaos, mm. right? You have to, there's, you have to attack one thing. If a city needs to be rebuilt or repaired, you have to attack one thing at a time or you're going to be in absolute chaos. Mm. Um, but for me, for what reconstruction was, deconstruction was sitting in that class and thinking about what, what do I believe? How can I see what my parents taught me if that's the belief I have and what's actually scripture? Can I trust this Bible? And reconstruction means that I do the work of putting my beliefs um, to the test and doing the research um, to get to what truth is. Mm. I think that that's the journey of reconstruction. If you're deconstructing your belief about the Bible, are you willing to do the work and due diligence of of reading articles, reading scholarly uh, Mm. uh, books? to help you get to truth. Are you reading both sides? And w- one of my major concerns about this deconstruction process in, that I see in culture is people want to deconstruct without doing the work of reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And they want to say things, but it takes work to reconstruct, to see what you actually believe, to investigate both sides. So when I was hearing about Bart Ehrman, then I had to read Dan Wallace because they're on both sides of the argument, right? And then mm-hmm. listen to their debate to see where I fell on that issue. That's a part of the reconstruction journey. And so it requires rigor to reconstruct um, and it requires discipline. Mm. The rigor to reconstruct, I love that phrase. And you've also used um, the term listening. Uh, so part of the rigor requires the ability to listen. And I know from our just personal interactions, um, I know from your public work, uh, the video series that you do, you spend um, considerable time listening. Uh, talk talk a little bit more about that process of listening. Yes. Um, people always s- celebrate me for being a good listener, but I, was, I learned to be a good listener by being a bad listener. Mm. So when I got introduced to apologetics in undergrad, you know, when you first get it, when you're zealous about the things of God and you get a little bit of information, you want to beat people over the head with it. And I did that to a lot of my friends. It was horrible because I just wanted them to know the truth. I remember my best friend would get in my car and I would turn on an apologist. Uh, 
because I felt like <laughs> that she needed to get more rigor. And I was not listening. I was just trying to educate people. Mm. And I I ran a lot of people off doing that. And so mm. that helped me understand, like, there's a better strategy here mm. than just spewing the information. It doesn't help just because you have information. And just even if you present the information you have and you feel like it's compelling, that could be actually something that the person says, I listened to that. I don't, I didn't come to the same conclusion hmm. because everybody has different experiences that shape their viewpoint and you just presenting information doesn't change it. And so you have to get to what is the, the issue under the issue. And uh, it took, I remember being in class and at first when I was in New Testament, I was intimidated my, by my professor because uh, she had a PhD and I had nothing. I'm a student. But then I got some kind of zeal after reading the apologist. And I was going back with another back and forth with another professor. He had a PhD. And I remember we're going back in this exchange and he just blurts out, why did God allow my daughter to be born with Down syndrome? And I was like, what does that have to do with what we're even talking about? Mm-hmm. And I realized that a part of his frustration with God was his daughter being born with the Down syndrome. And it it helped me see things from a different perspective, that this is not about the intellectual back and forth. This is about something much deeper. This is about the pain hmm. that's underneath the hood. And so you have to listen for the pain to really be able to minister adequately. And so that's kind of how that from the failure and having conversations with people to see that it's deeper than the intellectual argument helped shape my view of listening and helped me become a better listener. Mm. Lisa, that's just fantastic that you would learn from your mistakes and that you were transparent enough to actually share it with us. Thank you for that. Um, And I love this idea because it seems so true over a lifetime of pastoral ministry that, um, that yes, there are intellectual questions. And for many of us, some intellectual obstacle will need to be addressed. But more often than not, it's the personal narrative. It's the pain points that we all experience uh, as a human being yeah, that really needs to be addressed. We're just not brains on sticks with, mm-hmm. you know, cognitive rational questions to to answer. Um, we we're just fully orbed people with life emotions context and really encouraged to hear that this holistic approach that you take um is you know, is being the one that you're modeling for others um i think that's just fantastic um but that that leads me now to think gosh this feels so overwhelming not only do i need to be cognizant of the scriptures and then the intellectual arguments and then sensitive culturally but now i have to add the dynamic of personal sensitivity um emotional intelligence not just intellectual intelligence when it comes to navigating things um what kind of advice would you give to us when this all seems overwhelming like you put this all together like a little bit of a counselor, a little bit of a friend, a little <laughs> bit of a philosopher, a biblical scholar. I mean, this and, and a cultural analyst. I mean, this is just a lot. And if we're feeling overwhelmed about this, what, what kind of advice do you give us? Yeah, that's a great question. I think ministry has to flow from who you are. 
And I think you have to do the work of cultivating deep relationship with the Lord because you don't know what people need when you encounter them. They could need a listener. They could need you to give them an intellectual answer about science and faith. But all of those comes from the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the moment. And you have to have cultivated a deep well with the Lord in prayer, um, in Bible reading and community and relationship with others, because community will reveal where you have gaps in your character and development. And so I think doing the work, it doesn't have to be as hard as we make it, but just doing the practical work of being a Christian discipleship helps you sharpen in your emotional intelligence because your friends are going to tell you, your community is going to tell you, you're strong here, but you're not so strong here. Mm -hmm. They'll provide that (laughs) feedback. Your time with the Lord will help show you, show you those things and not just dialogue, but the, the practice of just, um, listening, sitting quietly before the Lord. I think Mm -hmm. God starts to reveal things in your own heart. And so I think, the work of ministry flows from who you are. And there is a reflection of the time you spent with him and his people. Mm. And that helps to shape how you do the work and how you know who needs what when you encounter them. Mm. When you think about um, your work, there are a number of things that you've mentioned just recently uh, that would apply to everyone. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the sensitivities, growth in character, um, holding together context and uh, particular life stories. I mean, all, all of that. Um, I want to circle back to earlier parts of our conversation about the the Black church, the African-American community, and, and uh, apologetics for the Black community. Mm-hmm. What is it um, that is your hope uh, for the Black church? And there's two parts of this question. What is your hope for the Black church? And what is your hope for the broader church in America, to be able to learn from both the challenges, but also the opportunities that you are discovering within the Black church? Yeah. So I hope for revival mm-hmm. in the church um, as we look toward scripture and in my and and where I think the Lord is taking us in this in this time. And I hope that we will be a light to, to the world that many people will come to know Christ. And I think that for the, that's my really hope for the whole church, um, that we would have revival. And I'm not talking about this revival that just is like a momentary, everybody's on their face crying out to God. That's that's great. That could be a spark of something. But I'm talking about the whole reframing, a whole devotion and posture toward God and a whole uh, a movement to share the gospel with others. And then not only share it with us communicating, but with our life, that our life is such a reflection of God that it causes people to question. That's the first Peter 315. I love about it. He says, when you're asked about the hope and many of us are not asked about our hope because we live as if we don't have any. Mm. And so when we live with this hope that spills out onto others, people will begin to ask us, why do you live this way? Why do you have this hope? We're trying to, to, to create these things where we're like, uh, we're trying to tell people what questions they should access. But if we live in such a way where we have hope, people will come to us and question us and then we'll get an opportunity to share. So I hope that the church more broadly lives in a way that we live with that hope 
And we carry that hope that draws people to us um, that we can share the gospel message. As people learn more and more about Jude 3, as our listeners um, have connected with this conversation, how, how could individuals, how can institutions, how can churches get more involved with the Jude 3 project? Yes, that's a a great question. Um, Come to our conferences, get our curriculum, donate um, to the to the ministry as we do the work of helping the next generation and the current generations see Jesus more clearly. Um, Reimagining faith uh, through through apologetics is what we hope to do um, through media, um, through good storytelling, because I think that's going to help really um, push the gospel message forward. Hmm. As we draw things to a close, Lisa, I'd love to just ask you simply, what is it that you yourself, that you're learning and growing from right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the power of prayer has really been, really in this last few months, has really been something that God is really growing in me. Um, at the beginning of the year, me and my friends started praying together and just seeing that that James passage really works in real time. Confess your faults one to another, pray for one another, and you may be healed. And the healing I've been able to see with my friends and within myself just by practicing that scripture is just tremendously blessed me personally. Mm-hmm. And I think it it spills into the work I, I'm able to do with Jew 3. Um, just praying with people in your church with your friends, with your family, confessing when you have shortcomings and praying together. My dad always says, confession to God brings forgiveness of sin, but confessing to others brings healing from sin. And I think that uh, if we just put that into practice, I wonder how much healing we can experience in the body of Christ. Mm, So good. Our guest on today's conversation has been Lisa Fields. I'm Walter Kim. And on behalf of us all, thank you, Lisa. Thank you. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.